Good morning, everybody. It is, uh, it's good to be back here. Thank you very much. Um, and uh, it was a, uh, a very good trip to Tanzania, I thought. And uh, so and I pray that the Holy Spirit will take what we said and will apply it to the hearts of the people because if that happens, I think real revival uh, can result in in a place where, uh, I mean, it's the front line. Uh, East Africa, in my view, is perhaps the most important, spiritually, the most important region in the world because it is uh, the front line in the conflict between Christianity and Islam. And uh, the church has been is been planted in East Africa for over 150 years. Um, so it's the strongest in East Africa of any place in Africa, and yet, uh, as a friend of mine from Uganda said, the church in East Africa is a mile wide and an inch deep. Uh, and that's what we are trying to help correct, because Ecclesia's uh, uh, motto uh, is deep foundations healthy churches transformed lives. So we're trying to deepen the foundations which will lead to healthy churches. And the lives will be transformed not only the individuals in the churches, but through the church, the communities. And uh, when that happens, I mean, as Jesus said, the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. So anyway, it's good to be back though. It's always nice to go, but it's always nice to come home. Um, so let me just begin, um, before we begin uh, talking about the word today, uh, just a word of prayer. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for today, and I agree, Lord. Thank you for the rain. It's very much needed here. Uh, thank you for these people, for this fellowship, Lord God, and uh, thank you for your word, and I pray that you will take your word and apply it to our lives and show us, through this message today, what you want each one of us specifically to do to apply this to get closer to you. We ask all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. <clears throat> Most people, certainly all Christians, would like to act and live in a way that pleases God. Uh, but most of us, actually all of us I think, know that there is a large divide between what we are on the inside and how we usually present ourselves on the outside. We know the pettiness, the prejudices, the hatreds, the lusts, the anger, and all the rest of the things that are inside of us. Now we can do a pretty good job most of the time hiding that, but it's there. Now, this is an aspect of a related issue. As I see it, there are three main axes or dimensions that make up each person. Knowing, doing, and being. And all three axes are interrelated and affect each other. Knowing, of course, is what we have learned, what we believe, and what we know. The doing axis is how we spend our time, what we do for a living, uh, and how we act, what we do. Now many of us 
have been or are uh, quite accomplished and successful in our particular fields. This is an area where we feel reasonably comfortable. We know things in our own fields that other people don't know, and if we're talking with other people in our field, we all share a common language. Now, if you meet somebody at a party uh, after asking their name, what's the first thing that most people typically ask? What do you do for a living? Absolutely right. Now, many people pretty much define themselves by what they do. I was a lawyer for 28 years, and even though it's been over 17 years since I quit the practice of law, went to theological school, and now teach pastors and church leaders in East Africa, I still am largely a lawyer at heart. Uh, but then there is the being axis. Um, in other words, who are we really? What are we like on the inside? Who is the real me? For many of us, there is a big divide, or we feel a big divide between our doing side and our being side. Related to this is what is called the imposter sim syndrome, which is the internal experience of uh, feeling like a phony in some area of our life, uh, despite how su successful we may have been. Uh, and for Christians, there is always the realization that while man looks on the outside, God looks at the heart. So if people ever say how wonderful we are, I'm thinking, if you only knew what I was really like. <laughs> now, how can we bring our inner self into conformity with our outer life? How can we truly be godly people inside and out? Romans 8, verse 29, uh, says that in essence, the whole point of our lives is to be conformed into the image of Jesus Christ. That means to think the way he thinks, feel the way he feels, speak the way he speaks, act the way he acts, his values become our values, and his priorities become our priorities. There was no discrepancy between his being axis and his doing axis, or between his inner self and his outer self. How can we be like that? Well, 1 Timothy 4, verses 7b through 16, points us to how we can be like that ourselves. This passage tells us that a godly life requires spiritual discipline. Now this passage is in two sections. Verses 7b through 10 uh, deal with spiritual discipline in general. Then verses 11 through 16 set forth the 10 commandments of spiritual discipline. So first, verses 7b through verse 10, spiritual discipline in general. I'm reading uh, from the New American Standard Bible, beginning at verse 7b. On the other hand, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. For bodily discipline is only of little profit, but godliness is profitable for all things, since it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. It is a trustworthy statement deserving of full acceptance. 
For it is for this we labor and strive, because we have fixed our hope on the living God, who is the Savior of all men, especially of believers. Now, this passage in 1 Timothy 4 begins by contrasting physical discipline and spiritual discipline. When Paul says that physical discipline is only of little profit, he is not denigrating physical discipline, but is simply comparing the relative value of physical discipline versus spiritual discipline. It's kind of like in the parable of the talents. One talent of silver was equivalent to 20 years worth of wages. Now in the parable, the master gave one of his stewards, uh, stewards five talents or about 100 years worth of wages. Yet at the end of the parable, he told that steward, you have been faithful with a few things, therefore I will put you in charge of many things. In other words, compared to eternity, even an outrageous amount of wealth is only very little. Or, as Jesus uh, said in Luke 14, he said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father or mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters and yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now he is not saying that we need to emotionally despise our families and ourselves and say, mother, I can't stand your guts. No, we all naturally love ourselves and hopefully we love our parents, our spouse, our children, and our siblings. What Jesus is using is a Hebrew idiom of comparison. What he's saying is, compared to the great love you naturally have for your family and yourself, that should be as if it were hatred compared to the overriding love you have for me. In other words, Jesus is of infinite value compared to even the most loving relationships and valued things that we have here on earth. Uh, so in 1 Timothy, the point is that although physical discipline is important for living a healthy life, spiritual discipline is immeasurably greater uh, in value because it relates both to the present life and the life to come. Now, discipline implies regularity and effort. There is a goal involved. Several years ago, Nancy and I started reading about uh, diet and nutrition. And as a result, we significantly changed our diet. We cut out or cut way down on processed foods, simple carbs, sugar, and dairy. Now, while we still eat meat, a plant-based diet is the heart of our diet. We try to buy organic and use a fair amount of spices because all kinds of studies show that a plant-based diet is by far 
the healthiest. That is where most of the nutrition is, and there are lots of nutritional and even medicinal properties in spices. Uh, I also have a regular exercise program that I do first thing every morning, and as a result, both of us lost between 35 and 40 pounds. We are healthier, look better, and feel better, and I think now we have greater internal reserves for warding off and fighting off illness. Our knowing affected our doing, which has affected our being. And just as a footnote, uh, you might want to check out the book, How Not to Die, and the How Not to Die cookbook. Uh, they discuss these things in a compelling way, and you can probably find them at the library. So, uh, and in the How Not to Die cookbook, a lot of very good recipes, by the way. Uh, now, since uh, physical diet and exercise have such great benefits uh, for our physical well-being, it should be even more true with respect to our spiritual discipline. The goal is godliness. In other words, a truly Christ-like, God-honoring life inside and out. When verse 8 talks about the promise for the present life and also for the life to come, it is summing up the blessedness of godliness. One commentator summarizes this by saying, irrespective of his present earthly circumstances, the Christian may fairly be said to have the best of both worlds. That is why spiritual discipline is so important. Now, in verse 10, Paul goes on to say, for it is for this we labor and strive, because we have fixed our hope on the living God, who is the savior of all men, especially of believers. When it says, for this we labor and strive, Paul is again emphasizing that maintaining a life of faith is not easy. In chapter 1, verse 18, he used the boxing uh, or fighting metaphor regarding remaining faithful when he said, fight the good fight. In chapter 4, verses 7 and 8, the Greek term for discipline is an athletic metaphor that clearly refers to athletic discipline. Now in verse 10, he uses a double metaphor, labor and strive. Labor is an employment or work metaphor, and the term strive in the Greek uh, was associated with athletic contests. In Philippians 2, verses 12 through 16, Paul uses a similar double metaphor when he says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, uh, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure, holding fast the word of life, so that in the day of Christ, I will have reason to glory because I did not run in vain nor toil in vain. So uh, he's, he's talking about working, a work metaphor, running, an athletic metaphor, and toiling, another work metaphor. Even though Christ is with us 
and is inside of us, and he is leading us. Ours is not to be a life of laziness and passivity, but of walking, running, working, striving, and persevering in faithfulness. Now, in verse 10, he then goes on to tell us why we must keep working and striving in faithfulness when he says, because we have fixed our hope on the living God. What Paul is saying is almost paradoxical. Like he said in Philippians 2, verses 12 and 13, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Specifically, we have fixed our hope not on this world or the things of this world, but on God. The rock on whom we have fixed our hope is secure and trustworthy, not like the hope placed on the world or the things of the world. Our future is secure in him. He has guaranteed all those who are his eternal life. Well, since we know that our future is secure, some people become passive and inactive, not caring about how we live here and now. The exact opposite of that should be the case. It is because our hope is fixed on God in Christ and our eternal life is secure in him that we are working hard to become like him. Why should that be? Well, I think there are at least three reasons. First, Paul says that the fact that we know that our future is secure uh, in Christ is the very reason why we should be laboring and striving to become godly people who do all we can to achieve the goal of love now. The reason is that he has already done everything for us to secure our future. And as a result, there is no pressure on us. We can live like Christ now and don't have to worry that if we screw things up, that we have jeopardized our eternal future. This is a great difference between Christianity and every other religion in the world. Because every other religion essentially says this, if you want God to accept you and take you to heaven, it is up to you to work harder, to do enough good deeds, to deny yourself enough things, and to make enough sacrifices. The result of that program is that no one has any assurance that God will accept them because we all know that we can't even meet our own standards, let alone God's. Um, but in Christianity, Christ has done everything for us. Therefore, we don't have to work for our salvation. It's a gift of God through Christ. We simply work it out. We work out in our lives the implications of what already has been done for us. Now second, how we live makes a difference both in our present life and in our eternal existence. Jesus said, 
Store up your treasures in heaven, not on earth. We do that by how we live now, how we treat people, what we do with our money, how we demonstrate love to the poor, the needy, and people in general, and what we do to spread the kingdom of God. Jesus said, even if all you have is a cup of cold water, but you give it to a needy person in my name, he says, I see that. At the judgment, I will remember that and will reward you for it, and my rewards last forever. So he is encouraging us and giving us a great incentive to make our everlasting future in the new heaven and the new earth as rich and full as possible. He is not standing over our shoulder and saying, I saw you not give that cup of cold water to somebody, and I'm going to get you for it. Now, now, if we don't give the cup of cold water, we'll lose the reward that otherwise he said he would give us. But our salvation is secure. And third, if somebody goes out of his or her way to bail you out of a tough situation where you stood to lose a lot, your life, your fortune, your reputation, your job, or anything very dear to you, aren't we naturally disposed to be incredibly grateful to that person who has saved us? We want to be like that person ourselves, to never forget them and to do what we can to please them and make them proud of us because what they have done has essentially given us a new life, so to say. Well, that is exactly what Jesus has done for us and more. So how can we not live in newness of life, striving to be like him, laying aside all the things that we know would displease him? Paul reinforces this by concluding verse 10 by saying that God is savior of all men, especially of believers. Now this last part of verse 10, which singles out believers as objects of God's saving power, suggests that the word savior is used in a double sense. God is both the preserver of people temporally in this life, but also the redeemer of people eternally. God is the savior of all people in the sense of being the preserver. That is his common grace, which gives everyone life and all the abundance of this world to enjoy. As Jesus said, God causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust alike. On the other hand, he is the savior in the sense of eternal salvation of his people, namely believers, the church. Because we are the recipients of this saving grace, how can we not spiritually discipline our lives and labor and strive after godliness? Well, this leads us 
to the last part of this passage, verses 11 through 16, the 10 commandments of spiritual discipline. And here Paul says this, prescribe and teach these things. Let no one look down on your youthfulness, but rather in speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity, show yourself an example for those who believe. Until I come, give attention to the public reading of scripture, to exhortation and teaching. Do not neglect the spiritual gift within you, which was bestowed on you through prophetic utterance with the laying on of hands by the presbytery. Take pains with these things, be absorbed in them, so that your progress will be evident to all. Pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. Persevere in these things, for as you do this, you will ensure salvation both for yourself and for those who hear you. Now these 10 commandments or imperatives show what spiritual discipline looks like in the life of the Christian. They are as follows. The first two are in verse 11. Prescribe or command uh, these things and teach these things. The next two are in verse 12. Let no one look down on your youthfulness and show yourself an example. Number five is in verse 13. Give attention to the reading of scripture. Number six is in verse 14, do not neglect your spiritual gift. Number seven and eight are in verse uh, 15, take pains with these things and be absorbed in them. And the last two are in verse 16, pay close attention to yourself and your teaching and persevere in these things. Now, these 10 commandments may be grouped uh, according to the major themes that Paul has been developing throughout 1 Timothy. Paul has been emphasizing what we believe and teach and the character of our lives. Through it all, both with respect to belief and life, he has been exhorting Timothy to constancy, faithfulness, and perseverance. Consequently, Commands 1, 2, 5, and 9b, pay close attention to your teaching, all relate primarily to doctrine, belief, and teaching, the knowing axis of life. Commands 3, 4, 6, and 9a, pay close attention uh, to yourself, all, all relate primarily to our character, and way of life, the being axis. And commands seven, eight, and nine as a whole, and command 10 are all exhortations to constancy, faithfulness, and perseverance, the doing axis. So let's briefly go through each of these 10 commandments of spiritual discipline. Well, verse 11 begins with prescribe or command these things. Paul is essentially saying, if you want to become godly, if you want to be conformed to the image of Jesus, these things are not optional. He's already talked about laboring and striving. Now, discipline is a lifelong process. 
Nancy and I did not change our diet only for a week. We changed it for life. But the amazing thing is, I am not tempted by the sugarized garbage that I used to eat. And I can tell when I cheat because I uh, weigh myself first thing every morning. Uh, but we would never go back to the way we were. Spiritual discipline is similar. It's developing new habits. Several years ago, Nancy and I and a couple of our kids uh, were in Pompeii, Italy. You may recall that Pompeii was destroyed when Mount Vesuvius erupted in AD 79. Now they've excavated the town, and one of the things that I found fascinating uh, was that the houses and streets were all made out of stone. Uh, but in the middle of the streets were fairly deep ruts that were made uh, by, from the wheels of carts that went up and down the streets. Now, even though the cart wheels were made out of wood, over time, they wore grooves in the stone streets. It's like that with habits. The more you get into a particular habit, the deeper the grooves become, and therefore, the harder to get out of that habit. And that applies both to bad habits and to good habits. The more we spiritually discipline our lives, the easier it will be to continue and to go farther and deeper on the road to Christ-likeness. Now, the next command in verse 11 is teach these things. Paul repeats teaching three times in these 10 commands in verses 11, 13, and 16. In other words, at the beginning, middle, and end of his 10 commandments. Now, when a biblical author repeats himself, it is generally to emphasize something important. And that is especially so when the same point is found at the beginning and end, and as well as in the middle of a list. Now, teaching is important, and it implicates all areas of our lives since Christianity is designed to apply to all areas of our lives. Now, we teach ourselves by reading and studying the Bible and good Christian books. But by its very nature, teaching is for others. We are to pass along to others what we have learned. This can happen in home Bible study groups or one-on-one -on -one get togethers with people or in other ways. Be a person of the word and use what you learn to edify others. But remember something important. We teach in two ways, by what we say and by how we live. Which do you think is the more important of those two? What we say or how we live? That's a question and you can, you, you got a 50-50 chance of getting it right, all right? Yes, how we live. Um, and as we will see, beginning in the very next commands, Paul specifically refers to our life. And throughout the remainder of these 10 commands, he intertwines belief and practice, teaching and life. So in verse 12, he says, let no one look down 
on your youthfulness. Now, older people naturally tend to look down on younger people because younger people do not have the knowledge and experience that comes with age or the wisdom that comes with knowledge and experience. Paul's solution to this problem is in verse 12, and it is essentially that character trumps experience. Consequently, he couples not letting others look down on us with his next command, show yourself an example for those who believe. We are to show ourselves as examples in the essential areas of speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity. And when we do that, all people, even the old, will look up to us. Uh, if a Christian's Christ-like character shines through uh, in our speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity, even the old will think, I wish my own son or daughter was like that. Or even, I wish I was more like that myself. Just as Christ is our example, so we are to be examples for others. Paul's reference to speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity shows that all of these things including how we speak, act, and even our sexual lives are spiritual. In other words, everything about life at root is spiritual. And how we live reveals who our true Lord is and who or what we really worship. Now in verse 13, the next command is give attention to reading scripture. The context implies the public reading of scripture. Paul couples this command uh, to give attention to scripture with exhortation and teaching. Our authority is God's word, the Bible. Now people need to be exhorted what to do, but also need to be taught why and how to do it. If they do not clearly understand what the Bible says, we cannot expect them to do what it says. Then in verse 14, he says, do not neglect your spiritual gift. Now everyone has been given one or more spiritual gifts by the Holy Spirit. Do you know what yours are? This is important because in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul talks about spiritual gifts and, and analogizes them to the parts of the human body. His point is that the body needs all of its parts operating as they were designed in order to be fully functional. It's the same with the church. It's not just those in formal positions of leadership who have spiritual gifts. Everyone, if you are not using your gifts, it's like a person with one eye shut, one arm tied behind his back, and one leg tied behind his back. Now, a person like that can do some things, but he can't do a lot and he can't do 
anything very well. You need to open both eyes, free up both hands, and free up both legs. And when that happens, the body, the church, can act as God designed it to. Now, verse 15 has two related commands. Take pains with these things and be absorbed in them. The Greek word translated take pains carries with it the idea of improve by care or study, practice, cultivate, and also the idea of fix the mind on, think about, meditate on. Our whole being, body, mind, and soul, needs to be involved if we are to become the kind of people God wants and expects us to be. Now that is driven home in the next command, which literally says, be in these things. Once again, the Bible and Christianity are not designed to be one-day-a-week things. They are the most wonderful things in the world. Christ, the gospel, his word, and his body, the church, should be our consuming passions. And growing in godliness, like growing in anything else in life, takes time, effort, work, passion, and absorption. But it is worth it. He closes the verse by saying that we need to take pains and be absorbed in these things so that your progress will be evident to all. In saying this, Paul is implicitly promising that our progress will be evident to all. Now, one of the things we therefore should assess and talk about with our spouse and with others is whether he, she, or they actually can see any progress in our life, any smoothing of the rough edges of our life, any becoming more like Jesus in speech, conduct, and character. Now, we will never perfectly be conformed into his image in this life, but slowly by slowly, we and others should see progress. If we or they do not see such progress, there is something drastically wrong. We need to find out what that is and why it is and correct it. And that may involve getting counsel or outside help, but it is a matter of first importance. Now in verse 16, commandment nine says, pay close attention. 9a says, pay close attention to yourself, and 9b says, pay close attention to your teaching. A Christian's real authority ultimately resides in the word of God. However, if our own life is not in conformity with the word, then no one will believe us when we talk to them about Jesus. Our lives must correspond with what we say. We cannot exhort or teach others to do anything that we are not doing ourselves. If we say all the right words, but our own lives do not measure up to what we're saying, 
then the testimony of our own lives will drown out the words that we say. On the other hand, if we are not particularly gifted speakers, but our own lives shine forth as excellent examples of Christ-like character, then God will use that to enliven our words and our hearers will understand, believe, and follow us into Christ-likeness. Now, Paul closes the Ten Commandments of spiritual discipline by saying, persevere in these things. We are in this for the long haul, and that long haul is our entire life. But he then adds a promise. He says, for as you do this, you will ensure salvation both for yourself and for those who hear you. Spiritual discipline leading to godliness is of supreme importance because the ultimate end is salvation, eternal life, eternity itself. We can have all the money, fame, power, sex, beauty, great family, great job, everything. But if we are not saved, they are all ashes and ultimately worthless. As he has previously indicated, our spiritual discipline uh, and godliness are not only for ourselves, but they influence others. We are always either drawing people closer to Christ or pushing them away. Now, we may not be able to see that ourselves, but no one is neutral and no one stays neutral. When I was practicing law, I had the great good fortune to read books by and attend seminars by Herb Stern, who I think is the best trial advocacy teacher that there is. One of the things he pointed out is that no one stays neutral for any longer than he or she has to. For example, if you're watching a boxing match or a football game on TV and you know nothing about the fighters or the teams, we naturally will tend to choose sides early on. Now, we need to realize that something like that is similar uh, with respect to our interactions uh, with people. They will be evaluating us. If they are not Christians, they will be evaluating us to see uh, if there are inconsistencies in our character and in our lives. And we need to realize that they have an interest in finding those inconsistencies. And the reason is, since they are not Christians, they don't want to change. Now, they may not be able to articulate this, um, but, if, uh, but what's happening is that when they see inconsistencies in us, selfishness and self-centeredness, lack of forgiveness, stinginess, or other such things, they will mentally say, there's no reason I should become a Christian. He or she is no different from me or from the non-Christians I know. Now, since our lives spiritually influence others, and since our lives have everlasting implications and effects, our lives are infinitely more important than we realize. 
That is why spiritually disciplining our lives for godliness is of infinite importance. So let me conclude by saying this. A godly life requires spiritual discipline because all of life at root is spiritual. Spiritual discipline, as Paul has laid it out for us in this passage, comprehends all of life. The knowing, doing, and being axes that compose our lives. If we become models of faithfulness to Christ, we and those we influence will be kept safe from the false teachers and from false teaching. We will also be God's instruments to lead others to Christ and to Christ-likeness. These things have eternal implications. Therefore, they are of infinite importance. God has given his church awesome responsibility re, uh, regarding reaching the souls and influencing the eternal destinies of men and women. It is the highest calling one could have, and it requires that all aspects of our lives, our knowing, doing, and being axes, remain faithful to God and to others for as long as we live. Consequently, a life of spiritual discipline is absolutely necessary and important. And if we do this, the result will be incalculable blessedness and joy forever for ourselves and for those whom we have influenced. So let me hold you up in prayer. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for each one of these people here, and thank you especially for your word. Thank you for the Apostle Paul who has shown us, Lord God, what we need to do to bring our lives into conformity with you. Lord God, because a godly life is uh, spiritual, it requires spiritual discipline, and he's shown us how to do that, Lord God. And I pray, Lord God, that you will apply these things in our life and show each one of us the areas where we need to work on spiritual discipline with the end result that we will be conformed into your image and we will be just like you. We ask all of these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.